Good morning. Happy Mother's Day again for those of you here and celebrating. Uh, like you just said, my name's Ryan Smith. I serve as the teaching pastor here. If we haven't had the chance to meet, I'm looking forward to our time together in Ephesians chapter 2. If you want to turn or tap your way there, depending on what you've got available, we'll also have it on the slides here in just a moment. Well, for those of you that have been with us or for those of you that are just joining us, for the past four weeks, Collective Church has been in a teaching series called Collective Again. We've been going through this old ancient letter to the church in Ephesus written by the Apostle Paul, the letter now known as Ephesians. And as we've been making our way through this letter over the past few weeks, we've been asking some of these integral questions about what it means to be the church. Specifically, as we consider our lives on the other side of 2020, as most of all of us are going through, coming out of kind of the, the life-shaking, world-breaking uh, uh, reality that was the pandemic year, so many of us are now kind of thinking, what, what am I going to be on the other side of this thing? Many people moving to new cities, jumping into a new job, ending some relationship, starting a new one, maybe at the very least a new hairstyle, or pretending that they're going to work out more regularly on the other side of it all. But what we want to be doing is asking those questions as a community, as a church, who are we going to be on the other side of 2020? What kind of relationships, what kind of rhythms, what kind of reality is collective going to be? And so today we're going to be asking this question of, of not just what we will be, but these larger questions of who are we and where are we and what's wrong with this world and what is the solution there? Like last week at the end of chapter 1, we looked at the need for a collective revelation and unveiling of what the reality of the church is. So too, we also need a sense of the story that we find ourselves in, the story we find ourselves in. A Scottish philosopher, and this is a definitely a Scottish name, Alastair McIntyre says, and you can just find his YouTube videos and um, their philosophy, and he has a Scottish accent. They put me right to bed. It's like last night, I, was, I literally YouTubed Alistair, and I just put it, it was out in two minutes. So the next time you can't sleep, YouTube Alistair McIntyre, and he will uh, wax eloquently about philosophy as you fall asleep. But when you are paying attention to him, one quote that he relates um, quite regularly to is, is this kind of um, moving um, statement. He says, we can only answer the question, what are we to do? If we can answer the prior question of what story do we find ourselves apart? We can only answer, what are we to do? What is the practice, the, the reality of how I go out and live my life? I can only answer those questions once I've answered the question, what story do I find myself in? As many of us who have uh, possibly utilized narrative therapy uh, can attest, there is a real work of, of power and, and just revelation that comes when we begin to understand that before we can move forward, the work that we need to do to get to that next stage of growth and maturity and health, oftentimes what we have to do is find a sense of clarity around what got me here. What kind of story am I participating in? And, and how do I see myself? Whether that's a true story or one that's been fabricated and developed from within or given to me by someone else. I have to name the story that I'm within. That shaping story, or what we could call our worldview, revolves around four basic questions. Who are we? Where are we? What is wrong? And what's the solution? Or character, setting, conflict, 
and resolution. You need all of these in order to have a story. A story without character isn't a story. Uh, a story without setting, yeah, like some like interstellar, you know, you can get into that kind of headspace, but that's still a setting. Even a nebulous non-setting is in itself a setting. And then stories need conflict and resolution. Uh, my four-year-old Emma uh, will lay in bed at night while she's trying to fall asleep and the lights are out and she'll ask me to tell her stories and so I'll tell her stories. Usually some form of kind of like a dad version of the Powerpuff Girls um, bubbles uh, all the way in our home. And usually it revolves around like, you know, Professor X, their father figure, trying to get them to like brush their teeth or eat their, their dinner. Um, I'm really proud of my Powerpuff Girls stories. But every now and then I'll ask Emma to tell me a story. She doesn't understand narrative theory. She doesn't understand that there needs to be conflict in resolution, in order, it's just kind of like this moving, like there's no buildup, there's no challenge, it's just kind of things happening. A story needs conflict and resolution in order for it to be a story. And all of us have some sense of some major conflict or conflicts that are, our lives are what's moving us through those things. And as we have that idea, that frame, that story we find ourselves in, we then build our lives and our way of behaving around those things. A little bit philosophical, but, but there's, a, there's, a, there's a story that all of us see ourselves with living into, one that we need a name. There may be a benefit in your discipleship groups or even just you in a journal this week, writing out, what is the story that I see myself living in? Who am I? How do I, where am I? Beyond just like Los Angeles, what, what is Los Angeles in my mind? Do I see myself as living in like a, you know, La La Land Los Angeles or like a Blade Runner, you know, Los Angeles? Which of the two, when I say Los Angeles, these are the sort of things that will give you a frame of how you then live within that city. Similarly, what are the big conflicts in your life? And what's the resolution for them? Your life, you are enacting and living out of those, those, those questions, those answers. Now, more than individually on a collective level, the church too has a story. We have a guiding and shaping narrative one that guides and shapes how we engage and, and expect and live into what it means to be the people of God, the family of God, the church. And the thing is, is as we've been looking at over the past few weeks, is that oftentimes we can have a story and, and a belief and understanding of what the church is that is not its story. But today what we're going to be looking at is the fact that the story remains there all the same. And that more than just having a guiding story, the church's story is the reason it exists. As missionary and author Leslie Newbegin says, the business of the church is to tell and embody a story. When you think about what the purpose and the business of the church is, what kind of business am I in? You know, as, as me being a pastor working in a church, what business am I in? You know, am I, you know social work? Am I in, what, what, what do you label this as? Just kind of the you know, religious over there. For Leslie Newbegin, we are in storytelling. The church is a storytelling community one that embodies and tells a story. And so as we continue to move forward in our collective series, today we're going to be looking at the first of two parts of what Paul could call our collective story. This week, we're gonna be dealing with the first part of the collective story, this vertical, you'll see this kind of show up, this dynamic of humanity's relationship with God, the vertical components of this gospel story. Next week, he's gonna move into the horizontal of humanity's relationship with one another. And for Paul, all of those together is the collective story, but we're doing it in two parts because you, know, you guys wanna have Mother's Day lunch. You don't wanna be here all day. 
So what we're going to look at, if you want to look again, Ephesians 2 is we're going to be looking at. Because what Paul wants to do here over these next two weeks is he's going to uh, help us, going back to Alistair McIntyre's quote, help us be able to understand what story we're living into so that in the coming chapters he may then go, how now shall we live because of this story? This is our story that then shapes and guides the rest of our lives. So chapter 2, where we're looking at Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, what could be said to be the most illustrative, succinct, uh, powerful, you know, summaries of the gospel in all of the New Testament. So look with me at Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 10, and then I'll pray for our time together, and then we'll begin to unpack this. 2, verse 1, the Apostle Paul writes, And y'all, oh, sorry, remember, those of you new joining us, uh, Paul wrote you, it's second person plural, so we're just, calling, we're just saying, you know, you're welcome to North Carolina, uh, it's, we're, we're saying y'all, so we can get a sense of Paul's collective language that he's using here. He's not writing this to individuals, but to a, a plural community, a y'alls, or you guys if you're all uh, East Coast. But Paul writes, and y'all were dead in the trespasses and sin, and once y'all once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. And we were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. Yes, by grace you have been saved. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Again, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, crafted or created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Let's pray. And so, Father, like Paul prayed for last week, we pray that you might unveil the eyes of our hearts, that you might reveal that which needs to be unveiled to us today. God, so often we can carry out our lives never actually seeing or naming the story that we're a part of, but living into it all the same. And so we pray that as Paul sets before us this story, the Jesus story, the church's story, that we might begin to ask and question and ponder, is this the sort of story that you're inviting me into? For those of us that are your people, that identify ourselves as Christians, that we would ask the question, is this the story that I'm actually living into? For all of us, we pray, open our eyes, open our ears, open our hearts today to receive this story as our own. In your name we pray, amen. And so you might have noticed in what we just read over, Paul gave us some really strong, vivid contrast, a really clear before in verses one through three and after. If you think of the before and after pictures of, uh, I remember I, I signed up for this kind of you know, workout regiment thing where they had you take a picture of yourself beforehand um, and then just don't look at it because uh, you're just like, oh my goodness. Uh, you have to send that in to them. And then uh, after like 40 days or whatever, you then like, you know, you take another picture and you see like all the difference. And me, I'm just like, I don't know what I'm doing wrong. This is the exact same picture, you know. 
Uh, my hair is longer. This is in the middle of uh, quarantine. My hair is longer, but that's, that's about it. But Paul, this is not, you know, Ryan's workout. This is a very clear before and after, a very different, a change within the story that takes place after verse 3 into verse 4. If you think about some of the infomercials that you've seen, you know, verses one through three is the black and white where everybody is so apparently more clumsy than any human being. Walking down the stairs, opening cabinets, getting out of their car doors, everything is ripe for disaster. And then lo and behold, because of now, you know, a a zoodler and the ability to make zucchini noodles or some new medication, everything's living color now. Right? You guys have seen these commercials, and for the low, low price and all these, that you can now have this sort of transformation that happens before and after, this kind of black and white into living color. And Paul is using this same kind of comparison and contrast, this before and after, but it's not zucchini noodles he's selling. For Paul, our collective story has this conflict and a resolution. This black and white and this movement to living color. In verses one through three, he talks about our collective conflict. Right? Remember, that the main point of any story is this conflict. For Paul, he summarizes this conflict as being death, domination, and destination. There's some alliteration for you. Happy Mother's Day. We got the preacher going. Death, domination, and destination, and this is the collective conflict. In verses 4 through 10, Paul then turns it over into that after and gives us a collective resolution where that story comes together. And for him, once again, got that, that alliteration on lockdown today. That resolution is uh, that we've been resurrected, that we are now reigning, and that we are being recreated. So conflict, resolution, death, domination, destination, resurrection, reigning, and recreated. Let's dive into this a little bit more. Let's look at our collective conflict in verses 1 through 3. Look back with me at verses 1 through 3. First, noting that like we talked about a moment ago, Paul's use of the plural pronouns here. Did you notice that Paul does the same thing we talked about a couple weeks ago where Paul does the y'all and the us language, the y'all and then the we coming together, where he's, he's clearly talking about two different groups in this passage that are somehow one group. We've noted this if you're just joining us, that Paul is identifying the difference between Jew and non-Jew or Gentile groups within the kind of the world and within the community. He's going to come back to this in a really strong way next week. But for now, what we can just say is that Paul is, has, he's giving us an expansive reach of this condition he's about to lay out for us. That by saying Jew and non-Jew, there's no loopholes in there. That's everybody. You are either Jewish or non-Jewish. By Paul saying y'all and we, he's saying this condition is one that is for all of humanity. That nobody in here, regardless of where you may be, is able to, to say, oh, that's, that's not my story. This is for all of us. And what is that story? In verse 1, what does he say? And y'all, y'all were dead. <laughs> so who's he, who's he writing to? Like, obviously, these weren't living, you know, these people were actually dead. Paul's utilizing metaphor to talk about something, about the reality of the people that he's writing to. He's saying y'all were dead, but alive, or you were alive, but actually dead. You were the living dead. The language that we kind of go to is is zombies. These kind of, you're moving about, you're you're moving into the world, you're doing things, but there is a, a lack of true life that's existing within you. This is developed out of Paul's way of seeing the world, that that all that comes in the future is actually inbreaking into our present, that every reality that we experience is already and not yet. It's kind of sci-fi, but Paul seems to think that death works backwards, that death permeates and invades our present tense. The place to which we're all going has actually breaking into our Tuesday morning when the coffee maker doesn't work 
right? That it's breaking into our Saturday night when our four-year-old has a cold. That, that sickness and death and the brokenness of this world is not just a something that comes at the end of our lives, but something that our whole lives is building up to. We were dead. For Paul, death is a now and not yet reality, and it's something that affects each and every single one of us. That humans are trajectorial beings, and trajectorial is not a word, but me and Travis came up with it a few months back that trajectorial beings, that we are moving in a direction. And, and that direction that we are moving then brings itself into our present tense, that we cannot separate these things. And so Paul says, even though you're not actually dead, you are dead. That the concluding reality of our lives is that when we die, it actually is the final culmination of a whole life cut off from true living life. For Paul, the signs of death is what he calls transgressions and sins or, or trespasses and sins in verse one. Simply put, the signs of death in this world are humanity's failure to love God with all that we are and love our neighbor as ourself. If you want to name, what's, what, what are the signs of something that's not living in, in humanity meant to image and reflect God? Humans failing to love, choosing selfishness, choosing the shortcut, choosing the easy way out. This is, for Paul, transgressions and sins. And every single sin in the law or whatever in the Bible, Jesus says, can be summarized as loving God with all that you are and loving your neighbor as yourself. So we find ourselves, this is the setting of the story. This is who we are in the, the story that the church is telling, is that we were, there is a past tense reality and a present tense for many of us. Of, of being dead even though we're alive. And the signs of that death, the fruit growing from that death is, is a failure to love, a fruitlessness in love. And so the question then moves us to where did this come from? To quote uh, the Explosions in the Sky song, Have You Passed Through This Night, which itself is quoting from Terrence Malick's uh, Thin Red Line in 1998, which is itself quoting from St. Augustine, uh, book seven of his Confessions. Uh, how's that? for all of those remixes and, and plays out. To quote from that, and this is a quote that always just is, is stuck with me ever since first hearing it in the Explosions in the Sky track. It's a question that says this. Uh, this great evil, where'd it come from? How'd it steal into the world? What seed, what root did it grow from? Who's doing this? Who's killing us? Robbing us of life and light and mocking us with the sight of what we might have known. For all of us, we experience, you may not think that you're the living dead like Paul here, but the reality is, is that death is coming. It will take you and your loved ones away from you. Many of us over this past year have experienced this. I would say in everything that I'm gonna to try to teach today, this is the one thing that we probably can agree with. We live in the land of death. And that more than just something that we're going to, it's something that is inbreaking into our lives and we experience in these little deaths throughout our lives. And so the question of Augustine, of Terrence Malick, of explosions in the sky is where did it come from? This is the question that regardless of whether or not you identify as a Christian, you need to be able to answer in some way. Where did this death thing come from? The chaos and disorder that we find ourselves in. 
For the Christian story, it comes from three sources of this great evil in verses uh, two and three. Paul says that this evil, this deathness that is rooting itself within our world is grounded in three followings is the language he uses, but that that doesn't fully encapsulate what Paul's going for. The, The language of following is bondage. Think of someone that's in chains being led away, following after the person they're bound to. This is language of of bondage, of, uh, of, of even addiction or of, of domination, to use that language. There are these three sources that are, are bringing and dragging our world further and further into death. And the root of these three things is that sin and trespasses. Those three things of where we are and what's wrong with this story, the conflict, the first, Paul says, is the reason that we are dead in our trespasses and our sins is why? Because we once walked following the course of this world. The first thing is the course of this world. Now, whatever you think about the course of the world, the language that Paul's getting at is is the pattern, the the course, the direction, the pattern, the, the structure of the world, the systems of this world, if I may be so bold, that we live within a world that is wired and dominated by disorder and chaos and injustice and death. What many of us may point to and call systemic injustices or systemic evil of racism or sexism, of nationalism, of consumerism or capitalism, or, or systemic poverty, or, or even the sexual revolution, which in our generation and, and coming, we, we, we tend to think of that as a good thing. Um, the reality is that we're already beginning to see that maybe that wasn't the best course of action within the American story. A sexual revolution that led to uh, countless men and women without fathers and mothers throughout most of their life. And in fact, I found about this this week. Post-sexual revolution, we invented 25 STDs, post-sexual revolution. CDC was founded, we had two. Sexual revolution, we now have 27. 27 new, 25 new ways of destroying our bodies. And this whole system that we've now been raised within, post-sexual revolution, that this is the system, the structure, the course of this world, that we tend to think of these things as a good thing. But in Paul's perspective... What he's getting at here, what we would call systemic, Paul would say, this is the course of this world. That humanity is enslaved and dominated by a a course, a pattern, systems and structures which result in humanities and this world's further destruction and decay and disorder and death. Paul says that death is not just something that we arrive at. It is something that the world is hell-bent on dragging us into. But where did this come from? Why are we enslaved to the course of this world? Because we are enslaved in verse two. Paul says, following the language, once again, the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work among the sons of disobedience. For Paul, there is a a added layer of what's going on within the darkness and the brokenness of this world. (laughs) Happy Mother's Day. That there is a power at work within this world that is manipulating and working through the vulnerabilities and the brokenness of humanity and our structures and our systems to further drag things into hell that is hell-bent on raising hell. Within the biblical worldview, there is a, a power beyond just humanity's power of warping our ideologies and our mindsets and our cultural prejudices. There is a power that is outside of our control. And our enslavement to the world and now to these, what we could call the powers or the devil, or Satan, whatever language you want to have there, is that this is, this is the thing. This is why humanity is, is trapped. It's not as simple and as easy as systems and structures, but it's not just as easy as saying, oh, there's demons at work. That there is this mess that we find ourselves in with a world that is far more tangled and messy and broken than we could ever wiggle ourselves out of. 
But this does not mean that we are purely victims in this story. For Paul, we are also willing perpetrators in our death walk. Where in verse 3, he says that we were following and living after, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. That we were living in the passions of our flesh. Paul seems to think that we're dominated as well by ourselves. Enslaved by our own passions and desires, the language that he uses here. Now this goes far beyond just sensuality for Paul. For Paul, desires and, and passions is far larger than just sensuality. It's, it's what we want, what we crave, the things that we're moving after in our lives. Paul says that we are wrapped up and enslaved to these things. What we could simply call authenticity. The word authenticity, which has become something of a virtue in our culture, uh, when you look at the, the, the original language behind where we get uh, authenticity, this word, in the Latin, it's, it's a compound word. Ought meaning self, and hentes, which uh, links to this language, this idea of mastery, of lordship, of domination, of crafting, of a workman. This language of, of authenticity is simply, I am the clay and I am the potter. And Paul seems to think that any human being who gets into that mindset, that way of pursuing their lives, the pursuit for authenticity, the pursuit of bringing out my, living into my passions and my desires and who I see myself as, Paul doesn't see that as a good thing. Paul sees that as one of the reasons that you are enslaved and you are exhausted and you are awake at night is because you, you find yourself running after, a, you are on a treadmill of authenticity always calling you further up and further in, but never rewarding, never giving anything back. And so this self-crafting, this self-workmanship, what we've called in the past couple of weeks about radical individualism is that we are enslaved to ourselves. And as we do, we're chasing after our desires as we are playing right into the hands of the systems and structures of this world and to the prince of the, the spiritual powers as well that they are more than happy to keep us on the treadmill by giving us just enough of what we think we want to keep us on the treadmill. And so Paul then says that because of our collective death, because of this three-part collective domination, that we have a collective destination in verse three, where he says that we were by nature children of wrath. The result of our collective enslavement Paul says, is that we are the children by wrath. This, this idiom that we were by nature destined for wrath. Paul, once again, do you hear the trajectorial language of what Paul's getting at? The direction of where our lives are headed and going. Now in the Bible, there's, we can do a whole teaching here, but we won't, that, that wrath is this really important biblical theme, but incredibly nuanced and far more than we normally want to give in American culture. We don't nuance, we, we, no one knows what that is anymore. But Paul has this nuanced view with, when he talks about wrath, is this being the occasion and work of God handing humans over to the implications of what they desire and what they want? That after a life of saying, that's what I want, passions and desires, that's what I want, that's what I give me, that's what I want, the authenticity, the systems and structures. I love consumerism, nationalism, race, whatever it is, that God will give people over to that and allow them to follow out the full implications, which ultimately leads to wrath, or pointing back to verse one, synonymous with death. Paul here summarizes what we saw in the first four pages of the Bible is humanity has been made to image and reflect God into the world. But as we turn that on ourselves and we reflect ourselves and our desires, we cut ourselves off from the source of life and we turn to death. 
So, like I said, happy Mother's Day. This is, this is Paul's whole understanding of the conflict, the reality of the world that we live in. And so as hard as it is, I think Paul's trying to get us to just ask that question like we started with a moment ago. What's the story that I see myself living within? As I ask questions about what's wrong with the world or what's wrong within me or what, what's broken here, does my language sound anything like this? Am I more prone to one of these or the other, to looking purely to the individual self or purely to systems and structures or purely to the spiritual? Or trespasses and sins, no thank you. Maybe death is just, you know, the great reset. What is the story we find ourselves in? Any resolution to this conflict is going to have to address, it's going to have to resolve and even reverse this whole thing. These, what we could call devil-inspired patterns of our world in our own hearts. But there's good news. In verses four through five, Paul enters into and gives us the turning point of the story, that, that all of this was now past tense because of, but now, he says, but God being rich in mercy because of his great love, even while we were dead. He goes on to say that by grace we have been saved. We're gonna come back to what it is that we've been saved to and for. But just a moment, what does it mean that all of this was brought about by God's deep love, his compassion, his love and his grace and his mercy? It's worth just noting, this is the, the Mother's Day nugget to put in here, is the Hebrew that Paul grew up in and is kind of writing out of that story within is when God identifies himself as being compassionate, the Hebrew word for compassion is actually rooted in the same Hebrew word that we would use for womb. To say that someone is compassionate is to say they're, they're womb-like, they're motherly. And so God, in identifying himself as being gracious and being compassionate specifically, for those of you, we have a handful of, of, of COVID moms that, that currently are like, their bodies are like raising up these little humans that are gonna be running around and terrorizing all of us within a few months. And their body, this is this level of when we think of compassion that God identifies himself as this safety, this nourishing, this life-giving source. And so Paul is saying that all of this work has been motivated out of that sort of behavior. Paul clarifies this merciful and loving grace in verse 8. When he says, for this to be by grace, that it's not your own doing. It is a gift of God. This language of what God is doing within this world is a gift to you and me. It is something that has not been kicked up or brought up about what we can do or what we can earn or what we can establish. That is a gift given by God to establish this new relationship of partnership and reciprocity of blessings that return on one another. This points back to a few weeks ago. The whole point of this grace not being by works is the reality that we had no works to give. Remember the past tense, the black and white, the before, is Paul's language was that you and I were dead. There's, there's, there's no aid in the whole process of someone that is dead. You're not, you know, drowning and you're kicking and, you know, you get the grace life preserver. The story that Paul is telling is you are a corpse rotting at the bottom of the sea. And God in his grace picks you and drags you up and breathes new life into you. You played no part in this new life that's been breathed into you. As one author put it 500 years ago, the love of God does not find but creates what is pleasing to him. That grace is not more than just simply a gift. It is a, a gift that is a power at work within humans. The one practical Paul 
note, the one practical note that Paul makes on grace is specifically so that no one may boast. This immediately points to where we're going to be going next week, where we've got a whole group of people that are dividing over their works and within the church. But for Paul today, he's saying that this grace gift that we've been given, this thing that we did not deserve and yet has been given to us by God means that we now have been saved. There is a before and an after. But this saved is not simply that you and I have been returned back to neutral, to the even keel ground, but a new territory, a new thing, a actual reversal of all of those previous problems. In verse 5, Paul says that though we were dead, we have been made alive together with Christ. The before and after. You were dead, but now you are alive. And Paul says that we have been raised from the dead. He's using resurrection language. He's talking about Jesus' own resurrection. But notice that he doesn't say that you will be raised from the dead. Present tense, you have been resurrected. Once again, Paul's whole way of thinking, the trajectorial being, all the kind of weird sci-fi stuff, Paul sees the resurrection that is coming for, for those who are in Christ. That resurrection means not just resurrection then, but resurrection now. The work of God within this world is less about you going to heaven when you die and more about heaven and God's presence and life invading earth now as you live. That's what Paul's getting at here. The resurrection language is not about somewhere that you're going to go later. It's about what's happening right here in your midst. This is the story that we're being caught up within, that resurrection works backwards. The future is permeating and invading our present. And because of that, then shapes our present. So God has reversed our death into life, but more than that, he's also reversed our enslavement and our domination. In verse 6, he says that we have been raised up and seated with Christ. Last week, Jesus was raised up to sit at the right hand of the Father. Paul is continuing in this line of thought, where now he says, not only does Jesus sit and reign from heaven, but he says that you and I, that we also collectively reign with him. That is where we are right now in Paul's mind. We are with him in the heavenly places, that his reign is our reign as well. I, I, maybe this, this, is, this is, was new to me over the years of getting to come around Ephesians, that not only am I future resurrection and not only going to heaven, that I am presently in a posture and a place of seated with, seating with Jesus, reigning in a ruling posture, that this is Paul's understanding of what it means to be a Christian. It's having a rule and dominion. To be seated at God's right hand is about being given the role of having true power in this world. The sort of power through which the world can be ruled and, and by what the will of God being enacted. This authority that belongs to Jesus now is a gift to you and me. So again, like we talked about last week, this doesn't mean that Christians ought to be running the world as such. But what it means, rather, is that the real running of this world is happening in the day-to-day -day lives of Jesus' people. As they're giving themselves in love to one another and to the needs of those in their community. And so Paul uses all of this rule language specifically as a reversal from what? Our enslavement. We went from being dominated by the course of this world, the prince of the power of the air, dominated and enslaved to even ourselves, to now in Christ, we are now raised and seated. We are now the ones in charge in Paul's mind. We have a reversal from underneath that oppressive rule to now being in the seated place of ruling and enacting a reign over them. And so he's going to get to later on in the book, in chapter 7, we are tasked with pushing back on the spiritual, systemic, and individual brokenness and evil within this world. And the way that we do that is by looking like Jesus in Paul's mind. 
And so this doesn't mean that we have conflict lives where we're walking around and you know, we walk in the room and, and you know, demons are fleeing and we're perfect and like systemic injustice just doesn't happen anywhere around us. But what Paul is saying is that our task, our vocation, our place, where you and I are seated within his understanding is in a place where we have a trajectory of victory over these things and we are to be living into that already and in our present now. The whole point of why that reign was given to us is what he says in verse seven, to prove or to show now in the future, in the ages to come and now how great God's grace is goodness, God's grace and goodness are. When Christians show the world God's grace and goodness, we do this as we enact our collective reign over systemic, spiritual, and individual death. This is, this is Paul's whole mindset. All of the resurrection language of Easter a couple weeks ago, they, does Paul absolutely have hope for future rever, resurrection? Absolutely. But Paul is reminding a church that is sitting on their hands and just bickering with one another. That's what's going on within the church of Ephesus. You guys have a, a monumental task and story that you find yourselves in. You are not waiting for the story to start. You are already in it. And in fact, you are showing the world God's grace and goodness as you live into that story. And that story plays out in verse 10. As he rounds it up, that he says what? All this comes together, that we are his workmanship, created in Christ for good works. This resurrection life now, this reign is also our recreation, to use his language, in Christ as God's workmanship. The language of workmanship, this is, you know, you think about someone crafting a poem or someone writing a script or someone that's working with their hands within pottery. This is someone with great attention and attentive detail as something beautiful is being formed out of the nothingness. Out of the death coming something that is truly living and alive. And Paul says that is the story. You are moving in that direction. You are the clay on the wheel. You are the script being typed out, the poem being arranged. That is the story you find yourself in. And even in the mess and the brokenness of your life, it's taking shape. Notice the reversal from the language around authenticity of us being enslaved to ourselves, of being our own workmanship, of being our own crafting that we have moved into a true authenticity, which is no longer shaping ourselves as we see fit within this enslavement to our desires and passions and wants, but now being shaped rather by God's desire and his passionate heart for us. What we could call a Godthenticity, a true authenticity that is bringing out not just our, our broken passions and desires, but the trueness of who we in reality actually are. This is the story of what's at work, regardless of if we see it or not. And so the reality is that we have these experience, another reversal that has happened, that we are no longer in wrath being handed over to death, but we are now taken up in the loving and life-shaping hands of God who is working us and forming us through what Paul calls good works. Which throughout the Bible, we have all of these different reference points of what we identify as good works, everything from caring from the poor, everything to dealing with our own, uh, 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 dealing with sin within our own hearts and minds and the ways that we perceive other people. It can be selfishness. It can go all the way to someone and we're gonna see in chapter five who's a thief and stealing. But then it also can deal with issues of good works having to deal with dealing with demonic and, and spiritual evil and also dealing with systemic brokenness in the world. Good works is this wide encapsulation that we could simply summarize as works which are born out of a love for God with all that we are and loving our neighbor as ourself. Paul says that those things flowing out of us are God's grace at work within us. 
that everything good that we are becoming and doing are the outflowing of, of God's gift, his power at work within us. And so here's we kind of close out. Do you see what Paul has in the before and after? Not just giving two pictures of a story, but actually a complete reversal of where we were and where we now are. Where we were dead, we are now alive. Where were we being dominated by, by the world and by the powers and by spiritual evil and even by our own desires and wants, we now reign and rule. Where we were destined for wrath, we are now destined for recreation. And those things are at work within us now. As he said in verse one, that we were walking in our trespasses and sin. We were walking in death. In verse 10, he says now that we have good works given that we may walk in them. The before and after story, our story are two walkings, two, two journeys, two destinations, two ways of being that Paul says have been completely reversed through the grace of God in Christ. And so this is our collective story. This is where we find the answer to who we were and who we are. That yes, that we have a, a ready acknowledgement of us being dead in our trespasses and sins, but, but now who we are is all because of grace. And so my identity is no basis for boasting or looking down at anyone, regardless of whether or not they are in or outside of the faith. Because I'm here because of grace. Similarly, where I am, that I belong to a world that is, yes, Blade Runner 2049 broken and falling apart entrapped and bound into the course of this world and in spiritual and systemic and brokenness. And yet the whole point of God's grace is that he's at work in restoring this world. You see that I have a tension now that I live within. We're able to see now and name what's wrong with this world. And Paul gives us this diverse and wide ranging view that allows us and keeps us from over-focusing the brokenness of this world on one thing at the expense of the others. I think it is, I had a whole rant with Lorenzo this week while I was working on this sermon that we are so prone to want to focus on one of those three dominations, those three enslavements in our conversations around what's broken in the world. Some of us that the only problem within this world is our internal, just a bunch of humans, little broken desires and individual hearts. Others of us, everything gets baked down into the course of this world and systems and structures. And some of us, we'll call y'all our prayer warriors. Everything is like the devil at work. And Paul seems to think that those are actually this giant big mess. And that in order for the kingdom of God to be at work, that it, something is going to have to come that actually speaks and deals with each of those three things. And he sees this story as being just that thing. And so this is our collective story of conflict, of resolution, of who we are and where we are and what we've been called to. And so as we close today, the question to ask yourself is what story are you living out of? To reverse engineer your whole life, every decision, every Netflix, yes, I'm still watching, every sitting at the kitchen and just like the kids are like exploding in the living room and I'm just like in Instagram land and loving it, right? Every decision, every, everything that you decide and live out of, you are operating out of some sense of story. Every purchase that you make, Every thought that you think, every word that you speak is coming out of a story you see yourself as living. And part of the way that the course of this world works is to get you living into one of those stories without actually thinking you're living into it. To realize, oh my goodness, I'm actually living out of radical individualism. Oh my goodness, I'm actually living out of, out of racism. Oh my goodness, I'm actually living out of consumerism. I'm living out of, out of 
a, just a selfish way of being. I'm living out of, I'm, the story of my life of conflict and resolution is all about how much money I have in the bank or, or my career or the clothes on my back or the house that I live in or the car that I drive or the people that I know. You have some conflict, some solution that you're living out of. And the question to ask is, how's that going for you? What trajectory are you on? Because we can only answer the question, what are we to do with our lives, if we can answer the prior question of what story do we find ourselves a part? For some of you with us that don't identify as a Christian, that you may, this may not be, I'm not working for any, like you making a decision right here, right now. That is not how we tend to work at Collective. That we know following Jesus takes time. But there comes a decisive moment. But regardless, wherever you are on your journey, if you've been with us in investigating Jesus, to ask yourself today or over this week, what is my story? that I live within? Who am I? Where am I? What is the conflict and the resolution that I'm hoping for? And is this story big enough to carry the web of evil within and without? And is it able to actually provide any hope? You see, many of us within the West, we have this story of, of uh, secular humanism where we believe that, that we're really not that bad and so Christianity can't really be that good. But 2020 and all that we've gone through, I think we have to acknowledge that the world maybe is a little bit worse than we thought. Maybe humans are a lot more worse than we thought. Maybe Christianity is that good. My, my invitation for those of you investigating Jesus would be just to entertain over this week. What, what if not just it, what if I am at that level of deep need for something? I, I, oh my gosh, I am in I, I am bound up in my desires and my passions. And, and, and I, I don't like the kind of person that they're making me into. You see, we are trajectorial beings, and so the question to ask is, what is that trajectory of your life? What is the aim and direction that you are going? Are you moving more into a person of love and life, of grace and mercy, or of sin and trespasses, of death, of selfishness, and, and that self-correcting, I am the clay, I am the potter. For many of us, maybe the pursuit of authenticity has not led to more life, but actually us being far more exhausted, depleted, and empty, and feeling dead than we ever thought possible. For those of you that are here investigating Jesus, over today and in the week to come, my, my ask, my invitation would be to spend some time on these questions to find what you answer. And then maybe just to pray and ask Jesus, are you, what would it look like for this to be my story too? But I want to note that, that Paul in Ephesians 2 here is not writing an evangelistic track. He's not, he's not writing this uh, uh, for the main purpose of, of winning people over to follow the way of Jesus. Remember, he was saying this is who you were and who you now are. He is writing this to those who identify or, or, or who Christ identifies with those who call themselves Christians, those who belong to the people of God. This is not a message for outsiders, but Paul is writing this as a reminder for the church of Ephesus, for those who are insiders. He's asking Christians, is this your story? Is this your way of seeing the world? Is this your way that you're building out of the life that you live? The question for us to ask, for those of us here that are part of collective, that are Christians, what story am I living out of? When I ask those questions of character and setting, of conflict and resolution in my life, do they look anything like what Paul has just set forward? 
some of us have some form where we've kind of, you know, chopped out pieces of, of the plot. We've kind of had editors come in, and, and it's us. <laughs> that we come into the script that Paul's given us, and we're going to workshop this, you know, test reviews that weren't great. And so we, we're going to go through and we're going to edit, edit the script a little bit here. And that's what many of us do within our lives. Again, I'm not saying that we literally sit down with Ephesians 2, but I'm saying by the ways that we live our lives, we show a different story that we're living. That many of us have some form of a, an, an, an individualist story where we find Jesus largely in part within our own, he's like a cheerleader for our individuality, for our own workmanship. And he's there like, you got this. Your passions, your desires, I love it. Let's see it. Maybe some of the really bad ones, Jesus is like, whoa, 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 not, not that though, right? But by and large, Jesus is here to kind of help us fulfill who we want to be. Others of us have a similar story with maybe some of these parts of the story, but devoid of grace. That we see all of this reign and resurrection and rule, all of this really cool language about God's love, and we just like throw out the grace and yeah, 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 grace and gift. And we largely operate as if this is something to be earned. We place ourselves on an authenticity treadmill, once again, of self-crafting, of self-building. We're just doing it with like Bible language. Similarly, some of us have the story, but we have it without the, the reversals that take place, specifically without the rain, that we kind of have Jesus on the sides. And he's kind of there for me when I want to pray, but really I'm still dominated and I kind of let the world continue to be dominated by the pattern of this world, by the prince of the power of the air and by my own passions and desires. That I don't actually see a new life and a new reign that I've been invited into. And again, I'm not saying that on paper you would say this. I'm asking you to look at your life and say, does my life look like this? Some of us, we live with none of the future. We live with all future tense on this stuff. And many of you, you feel like the Christian story that we're, about, that we're living into is really just kind of waiting around until I die. Like there's like kind of, you know, three big sins or something, maybe one big one. Don't do that, right? And go to church, read my Bible sometimes. And, and, and you know, just kind of wait and then go to heaven when I die. That that's, right? That's kind of like what the whole thing is. At least that's the story that we're living into. Paul is calling us into a deeper story that is less about waiting around for escape and more about enacting the invasion of the kingdom of God through lives of love and sacrifice. That's what we're called to. And this radically then shapes the sort of community that we find ourselves within, how we prioritize one another, how we prioritize even our gathering, how we prioritize even our little conversations with our neighbors of looking for ways to serve and care, our interactions with our coworkers, this is a story that if we allow it to shape us, will absolutely shape every facet of our lives. And will actually be the way and the mode through which those good works that God's set aside for us will grow. And so Paul has brought us together to see that the essential part of our task as a church is to embody and tell this story as clearly as possible and to allow it to subvert the other ways out there in the world of telling this story or some other story. This is what we've been invited into. This is the collective story that we have, a complete reversal of who we are, where we're headed, and what's up in this world. And the question before us is, is this the story that I find myself in? Let's pray.